The following episode contains material that may be harmful or traumatizing to some audiences, including discussion of sexual assault and murder. Listener discretion is advised. What did that day look like before your whole life got turned upside down? The morning of November 2nd, I came home to take a shower and change my clothes. I had spent the night over at Raffaele's place like I had been basically every night since I met him. So our plan was to go that weekend out of town. He had already taken me on one excursion. He wanted to then take me that weekend to Gubbio, which is another town outside of Perugia that is a famous medieval town. And we were going to spend the weekend there. My plan that morning was simply to go home, take a shower, get a change of clothes, meet up with Raffaele again and go off on our excursion. But what I came home to was a crime scene. Italian police investigating the murder of a British student found dead in her flat. Police believe she'd been stabbed in the throat after a possible sexual assault. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who hasn't heard the name Amanda Knox. But we know for sure. Amanda was a 20-year-old American college student who had moved to Perugia, Italy for a study abroad program. Just five weeks later, one of her three roommates, British exchange student Meredith Kircher, was found murdered. But what was reported in those early days, and for years later, were rumors, speculation, and a world obsessed with knowing, who is Amanda Knox? And it began almost immediately. The way that the media told this story, especially at the very beginning, was that I came home very obviously to a crime scene. There was a break in. There was blood everywhere. How could Amanda be so callous as to take a shower and get a change of clothes and go back and forth about what should I do in this situation when it is clearly a crime scene? Clearly someone was murdered there. And that was not the experience for me. What I saw was that my front door was open, that there was a few drops of blood in my bathroom, that there was feces left in the other bathroom toilet. When all those pieces came together, when I was alone in the house, I definitely got a creepy vibe. And my creepy vibe compelled me to go to the one person who I thought could help me, which was Raffaele. He was right there immediately waiting for me at his house. And so I went and I talked to him and I was like, hey, Raffaele, like I saw these weird things in my house. Do you think that I should be concerned? And he was like, yes, you should absolutely be concerned. You're not crazy for feeling like that's weird. You should call your roommates. And so I started doing that. But of course, I called Meredith. She didn't answer. I called Laura. She didn't answer. Finally, I got a hold of Philomena. And Philomena tells me that she also, just like me, spent the night with her boyfriend, was not at home. So she would meet me back home and we would check it out. Amanda and Raffaele head back to the house together to look around. Amanda's room is untouched. They opened the door to Philomena's bedroom. And I discovered that her room had been broken into. And I requested that Raffaele call the police because, to be honest, I didn't even know how to call the police at the time in Italy. He had to call them for me and explain what was going on. It was behind Meredith's locked bedroom door that authorities discovered her body, partially undressed, under a blanket, stabbed to death after being sexually assaulted. There's a language barrier, I'm imagining. How did you hear what had actually happened? 
I mean, I had to piece together what I was overhearing in, in bits and scraps from people. And so I very much relied on Raffaele to go and ask people questions. Raffaele is telling me they found a body. They don't know exactly who it is, but because it was under a blanket. So he's able to sort of apprehend some of the information. But it wasn't until I actually was brought into the police office that I got confirmation from a police officer that it was Meredith and that Meredith had actually been stabbed to death in the throat. Like he, he made the, this gesture. So I thought that someone had cut her throat. And that's how I learned that it was actually Meredith and that that is what had happened to her. What's going through your mind at that moment? I mean, now you're alone and you're hearing this information. What's happening emotionally for you? Selfishly, a part of me was thinking, oh, my God, I could be dead right now. What happened next would cause a media firestorm and land Amanda in prison for a crime she did not commit. Her fate in the hands of the unpredictable Italian court system over the next several years. From Cast Media, this is Media Circus, an inside look at private tragedy in the public eye. I take high-profile crimes you might think you know and connect you with the real people behind the media coverage to share their stories, in their own words, on their own terms. I'm Kim Goldman. I remember seeing Amanda Knox all over the television when the news broke. Young, beautiful. The media couldn't get enough of her. Seattle College student Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox. I was Foxy Knoxy, the man-eater, the adulteress, the liar, the manipulator. I'll be the first to admit, despite my own experience with questionable media coverage, I tended to believe what I heard on the news as it related to Amanda. I don't know if it was the fact that it happened thousands of miles away or where I was in my own journey, but... I just didn't give it much thought beyond the headlines. But like Amanda, I'm 15 years older and a little wiser. I know that what you see isn't always what you get. I hope you'll join me in listening to her story with a fresh perspective. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. I grew up with my mom and my younger sister, and two blocks away was my dad and my younger two sisters very supportive family. My entire extended family was within walking distance. So I very much grew up in an environment that felt very sheltered, very safe. I would frequently go and walk my dogs alone as a kid to my Oma's house, which was, you know, a 10 minute walk away. I definitely had the sense that the world was a safe place to be in. Education was important to Amanda even at a young age. My mom is an elementary school teacher, and she very much sort of raised a goody two-shoes, do-gooder in school, I got good grades. I'd always been a big reader, a big writer. As I got older, I got really enamored in creative writing. I was a huge Harry Potter fan. I really liked poetry. I liked Jane Austen. And I had this romanticized version of myself in my mind as somebody who translated literature, this barrier that we have between ourselves that we don't understand each other because we literally don't speak the same language. Well, I could be that bridge. Is that why you ended up wanting to pursue studies in Italy? Absolutely. 
my goal in college was to become fluent in two foreign languages. I wanted to be fluent in German because of my German heritage. My mom was born in Germany and Italian because I wanted a romance language. And I had gone to Italy with my family when I was 14, had a time of my life. I had read Under the Tuscan Sun. I had this romantic idea of Italy in my mind, and I felt really connected to it. When I decided to study abroad, I actually applied to two different programs, one in Germany and one in Italy. But I got into the Italian one first, and I figured I can go home and talk to my Oma in German. There's no one in my life who I can talk to in Italian. And if I really want to become fluent, I should just deep dive and go there. And I had this adventurous attitude. I was like, I'm going off on my own. I'd gone on many a little weekend or week-long adventure with just a backpack and myself and a friend in the woods. So I had this go-getter kind of attitude. And that's the same spirit that I took with me to Italy. Were you scared leaving that little town and your family and going off to another country? No. And I think that speaks to how much I was sheltered because I was not familiar with how scary the world can be and how vulnerable you can be when you're alone. I had this idealized idea about what it means to be an adult. You're out there on your own, doing your own thing, and no one's there to, to catch you. You're invincible. Yeah, exactly. I was a 20-year-old. I was invincible. I had everything going for me. I had a plan. I had done three jobs so that I could save up money and I could pay for rent while I was abroad. I thought that I was prepared for anything. And I honestly was not anticipating really anything going wrong. So are you excited to go live in Italy? Fucking yeah! Amanda arrived in Perugia, Italy in September 2007, ready to begin a new chapter. Those first five or six weeks that I was there was some of the best time of my life. I found a place to live with three other young women. I was just a hop skip away from my university where I was taking really cool classes and learning about Dante and Roberto Bignini. And I was having my espresso in between classes. I was teaching guitar to a girl from Kazakhstan. It was super awesome. Amanda fit right into her new life and her new sisterhood. Laura and Filomena were older than us, and they were Italian, and they had been friends for a long time, so they were a little bit closer to each other. Both of them were law interns, and Laura especially came across to me as this very empowered young woman. I kind of looked up to her. Philomena was very nice. I remember being really struck by how in the afternoons, Laura and Philomena would come home from work and like turn on the soap opera on TV, make some food and then take a nap. And I was like, yeah, this is the way to live. Siesta in the middle of the day. This makes sense to me. Meredith and I had more in common than Laura and Philomena. We were both studying abroad. We were both closer in age. She was a year older than me. We both had similar rhythms. We had similar interests. She was going to school to study journalism. She was interested in politics, potentially. We had similar interests. And what was interesting to me was growing up, I'm the oldest of four sisters. In this space, I was the youngest of a four sisterhood. And I definitely looked up to and sought sort of guidance from the other women who I was living with and socializing with. 
We would go out dancing together. We would have dinner together and we would do grocery shopping together. We were close for people who didn't know each other for that long. But it wasn't long before a young Italian man caught her eye. Raffaele Solecito. Yeah, Raffaele Solecito I met when Meredith and I went to a little four-person string quartet kind of classical concert happening at my university. She had to leave early at intermission to go and meet up with friends of hers. And in her spot came and sat down this young man who had not been able to find a seat. He had come a little bit late. And so he was standing in the back of the room and he came and took Meredith's seat. He definitely struck me from the get go as somebody who had a very different energy than the other guys that I had met in Perugia. He was very sweet, even a little timid. He asked for my phone number. He asked if he could meet up with me. And I told him that I was working that night at the local bar. I wasn't even really a waitress because I didn't speak good enough Italian at the time to take people's orders. I was more of the person who like gave out flyers and invited people to come into this bar and and to frequent the bar. So I was like, I'm going to actually be working tonight. But if you want to come by the bar, like I'll meet you there and maybe we can hang out a little bit when I'm done with work. He was incredibly sweet to me. I think I was also incredibly sweet to him. We would like read Harry Potter together and go to the market together. And Laura, one of my roommates, described us as piccioncini, which means like little lovebirds. We just were like cooing over each other. It was very sort of sweet and immature, but also like very in the cliche of that Italian romance type of situation. I don't think I ever understood that it was such a short period of time that the two of you were together. Yeah, a lot of people misunderstood that because talk about stories and talk about media circuses. The way that the story was presented was that here I am, this femme fatale dominatrix figure, and he's my, you know, love puppet, love slave, as if we've had this dynamic where he just does whatever I say and has been in my clutches in this significant way, when in fact, We knew each other for only five days before Meredith was murdered. Five days. Their love story, while maybe short, became the focus of Meredith's murder investigation right from the start. The way the story was told is the first glimpses that you get of me in the aftermath There's this image of me outside of my house where Raffaele is sort of holding me and he gives me a few kisses. And meanwhile, like if you just pan over to the side, you see my other roommate, Philomena. She's standing there in hysterics, crying, wailing. And here I am sort of meekly being held by my boyfriend. And a lot of people are noticing, well, how come Amanda's reaction to this situation is so different? And... I think people don't realize that Philomena and I had very, very different information, even in the immediacy of discovering the crime scene, because Philomena was there when the cops broke down Meredith's door. She saw inside Meredith's bedroom where Meredith had been raped and murdered. There was blood everywhere. There was Meredith's body. It was clearly a horrific crime scene. And Philomena saw right into it. I did not. And as soon as that crime scene was discovered, suddenly everyone was yelling in Italian very quickly. And so Philomena, who was fluent in Italian, understood what everyone was saying. 
I, who was not fluent in Italian, did not. And so I had way less information and way less of an understanding of what was happening in that moment when so much of the world's judgment basically took Philomena and me and said, who looks like someone who's really shocked and horrified that their roommate was murdered? Philomena does, but Amanda does not. So clearly Amanda knew something. Clearly Amanda had something to do with it. It just goes to show how so much context and information is lost when a narrative starts being built before the storytellers have all the information. And it was quite the narrative. There were photographs of her kissing her boyfriend. There was a referendum that she was not grieving properly. Why did you have to go to the police station so early? I mean, when did you know that you were a suspect? At the very beginning, anyone and everyone who knew Meredith was asked to come to the police station to answer questions. And they weren't interrogations. I was treated just like everyone else in the sense that we were all asked to come to the police station. We were all asked to give our fingerprints. We were all asked to tell everything we knew about the last time we had seen Meredith and who we knew. Like, it wasn't just me. And so at no point did I feel like I was being singled out. If anything, the only thing that made me feel a little bit like the police were focusing extra on me was what had a very reasonable explanation. The cops told me that because I was the one who lived with Meredith and I was the one who was closest to her in age and I was the one who had most in common with her and because I was the one who came home and discovered the crime scene, I was their most important witness. That's what the police told me for days. And so when they asked me to come in to answer questions and talk to them and look at pictures and come back to the crime scene and and look through things with them, they always explicitly told me it was because I was a very important witness for them. I was never told by them that I was a suspect. So I would imagine you're trusting this process and there's no reason for you to question the procedures. Yeah, absolutely. At no point did I ever think that the police and I were not working together and on the same side. And do you remember when that changed? It became very clear, my final interrogation. So to be clear, I was being interrogated or questioned for five days. I think I was questioned for 53 hours. Over eight hours a day, I was experiencing questioning. And very often what was really frustrating about that questioning is I would be questioned over and over about the same things. A part of it was because there were different police officers who were asking me these questions. And so it seemed like, well, this person already asked me that question, but sure, I'll answer those same questions for you. It was a team of detectives who were all like flooding into this case because of how much international media pressure was on it. So here I was just being passed around by the various detectives answering their same questions over and over and over again. And what I discovered in that final interrogation, they didn't even call me in. They called Raffaele in. And because I was afraid to be home alone, I went with him and I was sitting in the police office doing my homework, waiting for him to be done being questioned. They brought me in for questioning since I was there and they proceeded to become very upset with me. At first, they seemed upset because they were like, Amanda, you're not telling us everything you know. And I was like, no, I absolutely am telling you everything I know. 
And they were like, well, how about the fact that the boys who lived downstairs from you are growing marijuana? Didn't you know about that? And I was like, actually, I didn't know about that. I knew that Meredith was going downstairs to like water some plants or something, but I didn't know that they were like growing marijuana downstairs. I'm sorry. Yes, we did smoke marijuana and I didn't immediately admit that. So I'm sorry. And they sort of made me feel like because I did not admit to them from the get go that we smoked joints in the house, that I was somehow not being fully honest with them. And so they pushed me and pushed me and said, well, is there anything else that you're keeping from me? And then that became a question of, well, is there anything that you actually don't remember Like maybe what's happening and the reason why we don't feel satisfied with your answers is because you don't actually remember everything. This escalated like it became not just questioning, but yelling and at a certain point hitting, being clearly told that I was being an obstruction, that I was not helping, that I was hurting, that I needed to come forward with what I really knew. I mean, I was threatened. I was told that if I didn't cooperate, I would never see my family again. Throughout Amanda's five days of interrogation, Italian authorities used something called the Reed Technique, a notorious and controversial interview and interrogation method created in the 1950s by psychologist, polygraph expert, and former Chicago police officer, John E. Reed. The big takeaway of the Reed Technique is that it is incredibly effective at soliciting confessions from guilty people and innocent people alike. And that's the problem with it. Some of the main tools of the read technique is, first of all, lying. Police lie to you about what they know, what evidence they have. Even if that person is innocent and has an alibi, if your fingerprints are at a crime scene, even a reasonable person has been known to say, fine, I did it in the hopes of getting a lenient sentence when they feel like there's no way that they could get out of a situation. Like, I have no idea how my fingerprints got there, but how do I grapple with that? No one's going to believe me. I guess I have to say I did it. Other people are compelled and convinced by police officers that what they think they know to be true is wrong. They're just straight up gaslit. Side note, 30% of the people exonerated by DNA in the United States falsely confessed to crimes they didn't commit. A few years ago, one of the biggest consulting groups responsible for training law enforcement officers throughout the United States announced that it would no longer use the Reed technique expressing that the technique poses far too great a risk, according to innocenceproject.org. I was led to believe by the police that everything I remembered about that night was wrong, was made up, that I didn't actually remember the truth, that I had witnessed the murder, and that Patrick Lumumba, my boss, was the murderer. And I was so terrified and confused that I didn't even remember it. And so that's what I signed, statements to that effect. Patrick Lumumba, a local bar owner, was arrested because Knox told police he may have been the killer. Why? I was stressed, I was scared, it was after long hours, it was in the middle of the night, I was innocent, and they were telling me that I was guilty. And then, that same day, I recanted them. But also, that's not part of the narrative that ends up going out there, because they pursued a case against me despite the fact that I recanted, and despite the fact that the Supreme Court in Italy found that my interrogation violated my human rights. 
And so they go off to arrest my boss. They arrest me and Raffaele, all the while never telling me that I'm a suspect, all the while insisting that I'm an important witness, that I'm being taken to a holding place for my own protection, and that it'll only be a few days. And lo and behold, it isn't until I'm brought before a judge like a day or two later that I'm actually finally told you are a suspect in the murder of Meredith Kircher. How do you plea? While Amanda was being questioned, reports were being released focusing on what was said to be odd behavior, including cartwheels and splits. Very bizarre behavior from Amanda Knox after the murder of her roommate cartwheeling in the police station. I was not doing cartwheels. I did do the splits. I was stretching. I've spent long hours sitting on hard benches and hard chairs and being the sort of yoga Pacific Northwest girl that I was. I was absolutely doing yoga and stretching. But I think that one of the things that I have learned over the years and ever since then is we talk about storytelling. We talk about ethical storytelling. So in the situation with the cops and the detectives who are questioning me, They wanted to say that they had every reason to treat me the way that they did, that I was a suspicious person from the get go, that I very obviously should have been a suspect and should have been interrogated. And absolutely everything that they thought about me was justified. The reports didn't stop, but Amanda had no idea her face was plastered in the media around the world. When I was arrested. I was immediately sent to prison and I was completely isolated. I had no access to the outside world. I had no access to the television, to the newspapers. I was completely and utterly isolated. And it wasn't until my mom was finally allowed to see me after several days in prison. that she informed me that this case was getting out of control in the media, that it was being reported on across the world. Because this turned into this huge international bullshit story. Are you serious? Everybody in the family has been assaulted by me. It's gone crazy. I was being brought into the center of a very, very big story that was bigger than me. It was bigger even than Meredith. It was becoming a global sensation already. Even when there was a break in the case. Police arrested Rudy Herman Guede of the Ivory Coast. The focus continued on Amanda. I felt that the story of Foxy Noxy came first. And they call this tunnel vision. And this doesn't just happen in media. This happens in the prosecution. It's one of the main causes of wrongful conviction is that detectives or prosecutors will get the idea of who's guilty in their mind. And then they will look for evidence to confirm that. They don't look with an open mind towards all the evidence. And very often they overlook exonerating evidence. And instead they go, oh, well, you know, Amanda had a facial tick over here. I'm going to interpret that as evidence of her guilt. One of the things that I find most shocking, but also not shocking at all, if you have any experience learning about confirmation bias and cognitive biases in general, is how my prosecutor explained how no DNA evidence linked me to the crime scene. So they arrested me long before they had access to any DNA evidence. Not a single scrap of DNA evidence connected me to the crime scene where I'm supposed to be the one doing the stabbing. Like, let's be clear. The prosecution was very clear that in their scenario, I'm the one who's holding the knife and stabbing Meredith to death. 
why is there not a single scrap of DNA evidence of me at the crime scene? Well, according to the prosecution, I must have gone back into the crime scene after the fact and found all the traces of my DNA, which are invisible, by the way, and cleaned them up, but left everyone else's DNA there. So somehow I've been able to move into that crime scene like a fairy and magically disappear all of my DNA, leaving everything else in perfectly intact. That is the level of mental gymnastics people are willing to do to perpetuate the stories that they're already telling themselves. And we see that time and again in the media where it's like, look, this is the story that I want to tell. I'm going to find a picture of that person that corresponds with that story, or I'm going to find a quote that corresponds to that story, or I'm going to find an anonymous source that no matter how far-fetched they are, is going to confirm this story because this is the story that I've decided to tell. In July 2008, Italian prosecutors officially charge Amanda and Raffaele, along with Rudy Gaudet, with Meredith Kircher's murder. Gaudet requests a separate fast-track trial, something offered in Italy that calls for an immediate decision based on evidence already presented. This allows for a reduction of a guilty sentence by one-third. He's been convicted. His DNA is all over the place. His bloody fingerprints are everywhere. He did it. And he did it by himself. Gaudet was sentenced to 30 years for the rape and murder of Meredith Kircher. That sentence ultimately reduced to 16 years on appeal. While Amanda waited for her trial. After 14 months at last, Amanda Knox is on trial for the murder of the girl she called a friend, casually dressed and looking relaxed. This is where her fate will be decided. The prosecution says its theory that Knox and her former boyfriend murdered Meredith Kircher in a sex game gone wrong is rock solid. It has everything to do with saving the career of a very powerful prosecutor who himself is under indictment. They found the real killer. And instead of being able to admit his mistake, the police spent an entire year collecting evidence to try to prove that Amanda Knox was somehow connected with this actual killer. Almost a year after testimony began. It's all come down to this. Outside the courthouse, the world awaits. Frenzied journalists from around the globe, all counting down the moments until Amanda Knox's fate is revealed. Amanda is at the courthouse and will be brought into the courtroom shortly, where she will hear the verdict read. This court declares Knox, Amanda Marie, and Solicito Raphael guilty. The court sentences Knox to 26 years in prison and Solicito to 25 years. Breaking news, American Amanda Knox convicted in Italy tonight of killing her roommate. The jury deliberated for 11 hours before finding Knox guilty of murder. But then came the appeals. More testimony, more discussion over DNA, more speculation. The convicted killer, Amanda Knox, was back in court today. They called her Foxy Knoxie. Looked a little more pale today, skinnier than had been in the past. Maybe you could use hair and makeup, but I guess you don't get that in jail. Amanda Knox hopes she is spending her final days in this country. For four years, her only outside world has been the half-hour drive up the hill into town. In an unexpected plea to the court, Knox delivered a tear-filled declaration of innocence. Almost two years after being found guilty, the verdict was overturned. Raffaele Selecito and Amanda Knox were free. And breaking news tonight, Amanda Knox finally home. That was the plane carrying her and her family. This is actually a live picture now in a crush of media. Well-wishers are waiting for her at the Seattle Tacoma Airport. There she is, there she is, there she is. Thank you to everyone who's believed in me 
who's defended me, who's supported my family. Thank you for being there for me. But hang on, it's not over. The Italian Supreme Court rules that Knox and Selecito should stand trial again. Facing their third trial for the 2007 murder of British student Meredith Kircher. The Italian Supreme Court overturned her acquittal. So every word she says here and in the pages of her new book, Waiting to be Heard, could affect her freedom. Amanda Knox is not in court. In September, she told British TV she's too scared to return to Italy. I was already imprisoned wrongfully. I was already convicted wrongfully. In January 2014, Amanda was found guilty again. Her sentence increased to 28 years and six months. It's enough to make your head spin. After more than 10 long hours of deliberations late into the night, a stunning decision. A year later and over seven years since Meredith Kircher's brutal murder, the Italian Supreme Court overturns the convictions of Knox and Selecito once and for all. They are completely exonerated. The court says the case is now closed. The decision ends in almost decade-long international legal drama. I'm incredibly grateful for what has happened, for the justice I've received, for the support that I've had from everyone. You saved my life. I have to be honest with you, I struggled with my feelings around the legal system in the sense that I've been very vocal that my brother's murderer, even though he was acquitted, is very guilty of the crimes he committed. So talking with you, you were convicted, acquitted, convicted, and that exonerated. And I struggled, like, am I being a hypocrite? And I think for me, the difference was that you were exonerated. There was nothing connecting you, but I think the world gets stuff stuck in their head, you know? And if you don't take the time and the honesty and the Mm self-reflection to be able to talk through it, you just go on through your life and have perceptions and misconceptions when you're watching the news and you're seeing other trials. Do you have that internal struggle at all? I'm really glad you brought up that question because I think that One of the sort of unfortunate things that has arisen by how the criminal justice system is structured is there's this sense that like advocates for crime victims and crime victims themselves are working against those who are victims of the criminal justice system. We are on opposite sides of the equation. Do you feel like you are a victim of both? In the sense that, yeah, I'm an indirect victim of a crime. Rudy Gaudet broke into my home and raped and murdered my roommate. And if I had been there, I would have been murdered, too. So I'm an indirect victim of crime and I am a direct victim of the criminal justice system. I'm going to be honest with you. I absolutely think that O.J. Simpson is the murderer in this case. I think that there's overwhelming evidence to that effect. It's really horrible that he was acquitted. I think that a lot of it had to do with like the cultural moment and the media and like all of that because they all play a role. It's all part of a system. I think the thing that ultimately matters to people who have experienced harm whether that be harm by a criminal or harm by law enforcement officials, is that there has been an incredible abuse of power and there has been an incredible amount of pain that has been caused to innocent people. And that harm should be acknowledged and the truth should be acknowledged. And that's what matters. And that's what we have in common. What we also have in common is experience with the media. But it can be a tricky balance knowing when to participate and when to say no. When do you jump into the fray? When do you decide, okay, this one, I I can't let this one go? Because you are exposing yourself every time. 
What I've learned over the years is that instead of entering into the fray because you feel like someone's gone one step too far, you instead really, really take a step back, have patience with yourself, reflect, and enter into the fray when you have something to say, when you have a context that you want to establish. And that is really the most empowering thing. Another one of the really sad things about people who find ourselves in our situation is that we feel like we are compelled to talk when we're not ready to. And really allowing yourself the time and the space to develop something that you want to say and not just respond because someone just sticks a microphone in your face or goes online and accuses you of something is really key to succeeding in this media circus. Are there any glaring mistakes that you remember back then in terms of talking to the media? It's big and small things like big thing. I feel like I was a little bit taken advantage of by Diane Sawyer. Granted, it was a very important interview and it was in part to promote my book, but it was the first interview that I gave after I was released from prison. And what I didn't know then that I know now is that journalists will tell you, I'm sorry, but I have to ask you this question. And that's actually not true. Did you kill Meredith Kircher? No. Were you there that night? No. Do you know anything you have not told police that you have not said in this book? Do you know anything? No. No one has to ask you a fucked up question. It's not in their job description. Journalists ask you fucked up questions because they're going to be able to get a lot of clicks and things from it. It's good for them. It's not good for you. And if someone tells you, I'm going to ask you this really fucked up question, but it's good for you. If you're someone who doesn't work in media and doesn't have a ton of experience, you're going to believe them. But ultimately, what they're doing is they're exploiting you. For instance, I've learned that when somebody sat across from me like Dan Sawyer and said, I have to ask you this. Did you or did you not kill Meredith Kircher? She didn't ever actually have to ask me that because you know what? I already stood in court in front of a court of law and told them my truth, that I was innocent, that I had nothing to do with this crime. And no, Diane Sawyer, you don't get to be the latest person to ask me that fucked up question. Another question, were you or were you not into depraved sexual activities? Were you into deviant sex? Insensitive question, but hey, we got to get to what it is. This fuels the doubt. Were you into that kind of experimentation? No, no. Absolutely not. And there's there's no evidence. There's no evidence of that. But that's the theory. Knox is into some freaky sexual things. She tried to pull in Meredith, who was a staid, buttoned up Brit. She wasn't into it. And it went wrong. That's their theory. No, you didn't have to ask me that, Chris Cuomo. Just because the world is reporting that I'm a depraved sex criminal, there's no evidence of that. And so there's no reason to ask me that. The only reason you're asking me that is because there is a narrative that has already been out there that you want to be a part of the conversation instead of starting a new conversation. You are also trapped in the stories that are being told out there because it's easier to tell the same story that's been told before. That is the trap. Feeling like you have to take part in a story that is unfounded and absurd. Instead of thinking, you know what, there is an entirely better conversation and a better story to be built here, and you are entirely empowered to make that story happen. You're hitting a bunch of nerves for me because that is the trap. 
You talk about wanting to use the media to promote your book, right? And I totally understand that. And so then you subject yourself to their BS. And then how do you get out of it? How do you do that? (laughs) Well, to a certain extent, like once you've agreed to the interview, you are a little bit at the mercy of the interview, right? They are the ones who get to edit that material down into whatever form they want. And so the big thing that you can do as someone who is the subject of these stories is, first of all, being mindful about who you're working with, what kinds of things they care about, what are their core values, what's their incentive structure, understanding how the media works so that you can get a better sense of what kind of forces are going to be pushing these storytellers into one kind of story versus another. And the other one is being equipped with a really good story because storytellers are often overworked and underpaid. Diane Sawyer isn't, but like there are people out there who are working their ass off to tell one story after another after another. And very often the reason why they haven't done a good job with your story is because they simply have not had the resources to really think about it. And if you do the work for them and you think of a better story than the one they were going to tell... I promise you that that story is going to make it into what they're working on because ultimately what they want is to tell good stories. It is that simple. However, that assumes that you're working with someone who cares about you, Amanda, who cares about me, Kim, and all of the countless other people's stories that they're telling. This is a perfect segue. So I had done Oprah Winfrey. I did her show three times. The third time, it was the If I Did a Book. It was the book that the killer wrote. There was a big scandal around it and all this crap was happening. Yeah. She wanted to have us on to talk about the book. So I get on the stage and she ripped to shreds the book. I do not feel in any way that this is blood money. That the, and I just ask you this because the whole thing makes me a little sick. She talked about it being blood money and that she would never help promote it. I personally wouldn't want to be in the position to encourage people to buy this book. And then it became like a battle of wills. I mean, that's a tall order when you're exposed and you're vulnerable to kind of go at somebody in that way. So I had the same thing with Diane Sawyer, where it's like, I have to work with Diane Sawyer because like she has such a platform. I'm trying to reach people. This is how I reach people. And there is this sort of glamour of you're going to get so much out of it because so many people are going to view you. It seems like there's such a benefit. There's also a cost, though. If you're working with a storyteller who has a lot of reach, but who is going to misrepresent your story, people are going to come away. Away from that conversation that you had with that person and think that person doesn't have anything else to say. Who has control over the story has a huge impact over whether or not the next person is going to be interested in the story that you have to tell. Right. When you are in the conversation, though, and they then start treating you in a very different way in the middle of the interview. Yeah. Bait and switch. <laughs> bait and switch. It's not even about like saying, hey, you know, I think that you're misrepresenting things. It's not you don't even have to get combative. It's simply a factor of I want to introduce a new thing into the conversation that is going to be so compelling that you can't swerve away from it. So if we are talking like right now, you and I are having a conversation about how to grapple with like really invasive interviews. And that's because that's important information to have. This is something that I want to introduce into a conversation because I also know that you're 
you're interested in that conversation and we are learning something together. We're connecting together over something that is important to both of us that we know other people are going to be interested in. There are a million ways to have a productive conversation that don't put you at the mercy of the person who's interviewing you. You do have to, though, come prepared to be the storyteller that that person across from you is supposed to be. And welcome to Amanda Knox's TED Talk. Yeah. (laughs) But it's not just American journalists who've shown their true colors during Amanda's experience in Italy. One of the key journalists who covered this case for British newspapers He talks about how it was the greatest time of his life in his career because he was getting front page after front page with his scandalous headlines. He didn't barely have to do any work. All he had to do was show up at the police office and gather whatever speculative bullshit he could get and just turn it around. Basically, before the verdict even came down, he wrote two articles, one in which I was found guilty and one in which I was found innocent with all the details like Amanda cries. And this is how her family reacted, like just totally made up just so that his article could be the first article to be published after the verdict was put out. So writing his whole journalistic reporting the news article, inventing his own news before it came out, the wrong article was the one that was published first. And that's how we found out that he was even doing this, just making up shit, wanting to be the first one out there. What was his incentive structure? If you are the first person to report on the news, you are the one who is most rewarded. Well, what does that turn into? It turns into people who are writing articles before the news even happened, which leads to misinformation. Amanda's story has had so many twists and turns, filled with irresponsible lies and speculation. But Meredith Kircher, the 21-year-old British exchange student at the heart of it all, has been lost in the story. And it's time to change the narrative. When I go back to thinking about how this story has been told, I think about how the actual murderer in this case has been treated or ignored. Rudy Gaudet is Meredith's rapist, Meredith's murderer. He spent 13 years in prison and was released. This morning, the man convicted in the assault and rape of British exchange student Meredith Kircher is free. An Italian judge ruling Rudy Guede can complete the rest of his sentence with community service. And on the day of his release, the media headline was Amanda Knox's roommate's murderer released from prison. So his name, not a part of that headline. Meredith's name, not even a part of that headline. My name. And when I pointed this out to people like, hey, there's something wrong in the media where we can't even represent in our headlines the actual victim and the actual murderer in a crime. That's a sign that something is wrong with the way that our media is being consumed and produced. And people sort of pushed back against me and they said, well, the only reason people even know about this case is because of you and your name. And it's like, honey, whose fault is that? It's not mine. I was not the one who was writing the headlines. Like, if anything, you're perpetuating the same problem by continuing that same mistake instead of owning up to that mistake, changing the narrative, turning it around to what it should be. You're saying, well, I still have to sell my newspaper, though, so I have to use your name because we mistakenly made you the center of this case and you will forevermore be the center of this case because of our mistake oops, I got to sell papers. And that's the problem. And I think one of the big tragedies of this case, 
so many people have heard about that case, but I wonder what percentage of them actually know what really happened to Meredith and who really committed the crime. Because so much of the scandal and the stories that were told in the narrative around this case became, did Amanda do it or didn't she do it? And my face and my name came to represent a tragic situation that I had actually nothing to do with. The story of how this crime came about is not the story that you most often hear told when you think of the Meredith Kircher murder or the Amanda Knox story. You were always the focal point. Despite being exonerated, you can't escape this attention that's being placed on you. How do you deal with that? I feel like you can't take the perspective that the world is just going to figure it out and do the right thing. Like, I, I know that very likely the rest of the world is just going to continue to make this mistake, continue to associate Rudy Gaudet's crime against Meredith Kircher with me. They're going to think my name and that's what they're going to think of instead of thinking that maybe Amanda has her own story and maybe her story has nothing to do with the crime against Meredith. Instead, what I have to do is I have to work in that space and imagine, well, that's not the only story that can be told. I have my own story and I can tell my own story and I can live my own story. One of the things that is deeply distressing about situations like this, victims of crime and victims of the criminal justice system alike, is that the worst experience of our lives comes to define us and we feel a little bit stuck trapped in that the worst moment of our lives because that's the thing that people think of when they think of us. And we're naive if we pretend that that's not actually the case. Like people talk to me about this. We're talking to me about this. The advice that I give people is that, yes, it is absolutely true that other people have been owning your story for a really long time. But that doesn't mean that you can't own your story and that you can't tell a different story. And in the process, you may not replace the story that came before, but you can turn that story even on its head, given the new information that you have openly given to the world. And so it does require a, a little bit of vulnerability. I think we're both on the same page here. We've both been victims of people taking the worst experience of our lives and turning it into their own media circus, into their own morality tale where everyone fits into neat little boxes. They have their roles in that play. And the meaning that one can derive from it is reserved for them until we reclaim it for ourselves. Amanda uses her voice for ethical storytelling on her own podcast, Labyrinths, which she co-hosts along with her husband. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is, is Labyrinths. And she shares her story to help others also wrongfully convicted through her work with the Innocence Project. Organizations that have formed over the years who are dedicated specifically to helping people prove their innocence if they have not had a chance to prove it before. It's incredible to be a part of it. I have found that in the community of wrongfully convicted people here in the United States who, if I walk into a room with them, I know that I don't have to explain anything to them because they know they get it. They've been through it. There is nothing but love and understanding in a room full of other exonerees. My mission with Media Circus is to help open minds and hearts so that we can have the courage to hear victim stories in a new way and to consider how we define who a victim is 
Along that journey, my own mind and heart has been opened. Thank you for that, Amanda. To follow Amanda's work, visit knoxrobinson.com. Media Circus is a cast original podcast, executive produced and hosted by me, Kim Goldman, produced by Jackie McDougall. Harper Carlton is our associate producer.